the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening this morning. My guest this hour and on the interview with Hugh Hewitt today is Ross Douthat. He is a columnist with the New York Times. He's been a guest in the past, but it gathered not for a while because I missed an entire book. Hello, Ross. How are you? I'm great, Hugh. How are you? Good, but I, I am embarrassed to admit I miss the decadent society completely. Now, in my line of work, where books by the ton arrive every week, I sometimes don't spot them. You are not the world's greatest self-promoter. You're kind of bad at that, actually. But I miss the decadent society completely when it came out in February. How did that happen? Well, the, the truth of it, Hugh, is that it came out, the hardcover came out uh, two weeks before a little thing called the global pandemic. So Aha. more more than a few people found themselves with something more important to focus on than my amazing literary work. It's coming out so in paperback not, now. Alone. It's coming out in yeah, paperback so it, now. So I have not read it. I never talked to an author about their book unless I've read it and or I and I disclose. So tell us what we will find when we read The Decadent Society, because it's not a very cheerful title. <laughs> <laughs> It's only cheerful relative to, you know, rolling global catastrophe. Basically. True. But true. no, it's, it's, it's a book um, about the last 50 years of Western American history. And the argument is, in a nutshell, um, that we're stuck. It's a book about being stuck. It's a book about how stagnation and gridlock and sort of technological slowdown um, demographic decline, people not having any kids anymore, how these are the defining realities of the developed world. Um, and so it is, it is actually not as pessimistic as the title sounds, because it argues that people who are expecting us to, you know, hurdle over the cliff into some kind of catastrophe, you know, some sort of civilization ending doom, are actually missing the, the core reality, which is that we aren't hurtling anywhere. We're just sort of going in circles, watching the same superhero movies over and over again, you know, stuck at 50-50 in our politics. Um, so it's sort of about how we got there. It starts with the moon landing as this sort of peak of Western technological achievement and razzle-dazzle, and then talks about how we fell into stagnation, um, and then ends by talking about the ways, for good or ill, that we might get out. Now, I had not got you pegged for a Spengler, and perhaps you aren't, because Bad Religion, while it is a book that chronicles what is an effective decline in the Catholic Church in America, nevertheless had some green shoots at the end of it. 
and there are some green shoots in the American Catholic Church, which I want to talk to you about. But it can't compare with Doom. That is a book I just finished, Neil Ferguson's new book on the history of catastrophe and COVID. <laughs> and, I, I, you know, if I look back and I, I imagine history 50 years and 100 years looking back at our last year, they will say not that a pandemic came and that it killed 6 million people and China covered it up and it was a source of great stress, but they will say that the United States, in combination with other scientific genius across the world, found vaccinations that were largely and widely efficacious in a record-breaking time, the distribution of which was similarly fast, and they stopped it. Isn't that the takeaway from a, from a long view, Ross, of the last year? I mean, I think the last year offers grist for both interpretations. Um, I think you can, t and I think we'll know more in 15 or 20 or 25 years. Um, you can look at the last year and focus on the vaccines and say, look, we can still do rapid technological progress. We can still do amazing scientific work. And, you know, the way we did Operation Warp Speed should be a model for, you know, how you clear away regulatory obstacles, how you, you know, sort of start with a scientific breakthrough and then don't let it get bogged down in all the, you know, all the bureaucratic apparatus <laughs> that we've set up to prevent scientific breakthroughs from actually um, reaching ordinary people. So that would be the optimistic story. The pessimistic story is if you look at how all of our other institutions function, um, starting with the CDC and the FDA, you know, and going all the way down through our political institutions, you've got plenty of evidence of what I'm calling decadence. Right. That, you know, that sort of the 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 politicians failed, the bureaucracies failed and only the science saved us. So so it's I, I think we're going to know more in 2030. Right. We'll know, you know, did this really change? Are, are we going to take lessons from this? Are we going to say, OK, this was a moment of reckoning with what's broken in our institutions and we're going to, you know, go with what worked and sort of have it be a pivot point into an age of greater progress and maybe transformations in other areas or i mean just take something like the birth rate right like the story of the COVID era when when COVID hit a lot of people said oh everybody will be home you know um they'll be you know they'll 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 be bored it'll be like a blackout in new york city there'll be a baby boom one year later and one year later we know there wasn't a baby boom there was there was a baby bust instead and so our already low fertility rate went even lower because everybody went home and just you know went on zoom and sort of disappeared into virtual life and nobody was dating or getting married anymore so there's pieces of there's pieces of optimism in the year 2020 and 2021 but there's also ways in which we deepened our decadence in the last year and need to struggle even further to get let out. me toss out to you a couple of of I'm by nature an optimist. And so the, I, I know, I know. <laughs> the nature of sclerosis that you describe was everywhere evident and deep. And coming out of this, I note a couple of things. One is the great dispersion. And the great dispersion, yep. it's my own term, for people just going home and going to different places and saying, you know, I can work in Indiana for a fraction of the cost of what New York City cost me. We can run the Washington Post from my editor's been in Montana for a year. We can, I don't know where your editor's been, but it hadn't been at the New York Times building until recently. We can write books in in. Philadelphia, we can write books in Florida, we can write books in Texas and Austin. 
we can we can make things. We can be accountants. And so this great dispersion is a is a genuinely significant moment in American history, Ross. Have you thought uh, yes. you think no, I, about this I, stuff? What what do you make of it? I, I think I think that's right. And so I would put that, you know, if I'm making my ledger of things that deepen decadence and things that help us get out, the great dispersion is on the things that help us get outside. Because for the last 20 years, everyone has sat around and said, man, we've got this great new technology, the Internet. It seems like it should let people live anywhere. And yet, in fact, in the Internet age, all of the smart and talented or at least well-credentialed people, which is not always the same thing, ended up crowding more and more into, you know, the Acela Corridor on the East Coast, um, the Pacific Northwest, the Bay Area, and L.A., and that fed political polarization. It was bad for the heartland because talented people weren't going back to those cities, and yet nobody could sort of figure out how to use the Internet to change that, right? And so along comes COVID, and suddenly people have a really strong incentive not to live in high-rises in New York City, and people who have you know, who, who want to raise a family but feel like, oh, you know, they just sort of can't imagine leaving their Silicon Valley job or something, suddenly are moving to Boise and to Dallas and to Montana and to all these places. And so that if that change is permanent, then it's both it's good for a lot of things. It's good for economic dynamism in the country as a whole. It's good for people having families because it's easier to have families outside these, you know, these sort of, you know, digital age megacities. Um, and it's probably good for politics because it means that you aren't, you know, you aren't sort of just living among people who you already agree with and locking yourself deeper into 50-50 polarization. So, yes, you can talk me into optimism on the great dispersion. And it's there in the paperback of of the book without your catchy name, which I wish I'd, which I wish I'd had. Well, feel free to keep using it. Let me go to the other two areas where there are, before I turn to your column, I originally called you because of your column on Sunday, but, but now that I know about the great decadence, I have someone to talk about these grand idea with. I think uh, K through 12 education is also in for a great awakening that the transparency of the sclerosis in public education led to a lot of recognition that much is wrong in that sector. One of those outgrowth I had hoped would be a renewal of parochial education. That has not yet, in fact, happened. In fact, a number of Catholic schools closed in the last year. The Catholic schools that you wrote about in Bad Religion that I flourished in in the 60s and the 70s, uh, many of them closed during the COVID uh, crisis, but they may or may not reopen. And I think a lot of private schools took in a lot of people. More importantly, a lot of parents woke up and we will see changes on school boards across the United States because they did not like either the outcome or the decision making or the unveiled power of teachers unions. And I suspect a fundamental transformation in education K through 12 will occur in the next five years. Your thoughts on that? So I think they'll, there will. So one thing that will definitely happen is much more homeschooling and things like homeschooling, right? So you have a certain number of parents who um, had their kids home and sort of had to homeschool by necessity and discovered that they liked it or they felt that they could do it better than, um, than the schools their kids were in. And you also had these sort of, you know, this network set up, basically. And again, sort of using the Internet in ways that 
we all hoped it could be used 20 years ago instead of just for food delivery apps, right? You know, sort of using the Internet to create educational pods and sort of bringing families together and hiring tutors and doing all kinds of things. Um, you know, and there are, there are obviously also people who are just overwhelmed by having their kids home. Um, when we had our kids home, I wasn't, I wasn't converted to homeschooling, I have to say. But I think in general, you're going to have a big, a big number of parents sort of continuing in that space and a lot of sort of, you know, quasi-school innovation, right? Like groups of parents, networks, pods, cooperatives, and so on coming out of it. So that's, that's where I share some of your optimism. I'm less certain about what happens to the public school bureaucracy, because obviously, you know, it's not just issues surrounding the power of the teachers unions that was exposed here you also had in the middle of the pandemic this kind of further ideological transformation in public schools and a, you know a big shift to the left and that's produced some backlash and you see it in sort of school board debates and arguments about how schools are teaching about race and racism and so there's there is some sort of energy and argument there but i think it's also possible that in some areas you you have the most engaged parents and the most serious parents leave the public school system and the system that's sort of left behind the power of both sort of bureaucracy and ideology gets more entrenched so that that would be the more and also i think yeah on on the parochial schools point i think the sort of institutional weakness of america's churches means there's this big opportunity but is American Catholicism or, for that matter, Presbyterianism or any other church really prepared to take advantage of it? There I'm, I'm a little unsure. Now, the third area that I count myself an optimism in is, in fact, church. Now, I had this conversation with Al Mohler, the, the head of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and uh, Boyce College Candidate for president of the Southern Baptist. And I hope, uh, uh, bless the Southern Baptist, I hope that happens. But Al and I were talking about the fact that um, I, I went back to my, like you, Ross that I'm a religious wanderer. I'm a mass attender on Saturday night and a Presbyterian on Sunday. And I, I wander around the religious one river, two banks, and you've been all over the place. You've even, you've been to more places than I have. You're a shopping center Christian. You just basically want. As, as a kid, though, Hugh, I was, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't my fault. I was, I was taken to more places. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, but you know them. They're in your bones a little yeah. bit, even though you're a Catholic now. Well, I went back to my Presbyterian church on Sunday, and it's the first time it's been open in 16 months. And it was jammed, and the the preaching was taken from Psalm 122. I'm glad to go up to the house of the Lord. People were happy to be back at church. And so I asked Dr. Moeller, do you think that this energy, that that which was missing is back and people are grateful for it? And he said that is, in fact, happening across the United States, not in mainstream churches, but in evangelical communities. They really understand how much church mattered. And beneath that, how much gospel mattered? Have you seen, heard, under, and I believe that's a Catholic phenomenon as well, Ross. So I think it's too, I think it's too soon to tell. I mean, I think you see that in there, there's definitely like a spring back effect where there's, you know, relief at being able to be in church again and go to coffee hour again and socialize again and worship again. That's having some, some effect. There's also, though, the effect of, you know, what's been happening in American Christianity for a while, but especially the last 10 or 15 years, is that the lukewarm believers, the people who sort of 
Christmas and Easter Catholics, people who go to church five or ten times a year, identify as a Methodist, don't practice zealously, those people have been falling away in larger and larger numbers. So you've had this sort of reduction of American Christianity to a core, and that core is pretty resilient, um, especially for evangelicals, more so than for for Catholics, I I have to say. Um, But so the big post-pandemic question is, when people come back, is it just the core coming back, and did you know? And did COVID mean that just a larger number of the sort of lukewarm got habituated to sleeping in on Sunday morning, not you know, not giving money every Sunday, all all of these kind of things? And you know, for long-term optimism, the core matters, right? If you have Christianity reduced to a resilient core, that resilience can be the seed to the new revival, and it can transform America in the long run. But in the short term, churches are built around having the fervent and the lukewarm there together. They're built around that financially. They're built around it in terms of their cultural influence. And, you know, just to take Catholicism, like so much of sort of Catholic institutional life, schools, hospitals, all of these kind of things depends on people who are sort of culturally Catholic, right, who, who like the church but don't love it and so on. And if those people are going away, the church has a big, tough adaptation ahead of it. And my more pessimistic suspicion is that that adaptation has been hastened, that problem has been hastened by COVID overall. Well, uh, interesting, our, our mutual friend Larry Arn likes to say fundamental things are afoot in those three categories, and they are and we will see. Uh, let's turn now to politics, about which I am not as optimistic, but I'm also neither as pessimistic as you are. In, in your Sunday column titled, Are We Destined for a Trump Coup in 2024? And you quote people like Jay Rosen, who used to be a regular guest on this show, and then he became, uh, uh, he just absented himself, and, and for reasons I don't know, and Jeet here. And, and people who are, they're not Marxists, but they're neo-Marxists, and their critiques are definitely anchored in the far left, and they have been doomsayers for as long as I have been an optimist about American politics. And, I, and, Ross, I just got to say, most Americans, I mean, I think 90% when I go out and about to Cleveland or down to Orlando where I'm going next week for Alliance Defending Freedom or I go off to California, the Nixon Foundation, they don't, they don't have this gloomy view of politics. They're not locked into thinking about it all the time. Our job, your job, my job is to talk about politics and think about politics all the time. But Donald Trump is 75 and Joe Biden is 78 and 2020 is in the rearview mirror. And I, I, a coup, it, you know, all of the institutions held, as you note, and Vice President Pence said, no, I don't have any job here. Larry Arn, the, probably the most influential conservative in America that nobody knows about, said the vice president doesn't have any job here. The, the extreme view of what ought to have happened got traction with about 5% of the people, and the 5% are very loud on both sides. And for every, my proposition, for every Marjorie Taylor Green and Matt Gates. You've got an Ilhan Omar and an AOC, and both extremes get way too much attention. And the the actual people like Hugh Hewitt and and my friend from uh, Warren Kennedy High School, who is running for Senate now, whose name I'm not thinking of from Warren, Ohio. He's he's a congressman who ran against Nancy Pelosi. Tim Ryan. That they're yeah. actually they're the Republican and Democratic Party, and they're not going in for coups. So what's your response? I mean, it, it just seems to me manifestly obvious that Americans 
are stable. They get mad at each other. But CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News are 6% max, and usually about 3% of the country. No, I mean, I'm going to agree with you, Hugh. I, I, oh, I think good. That, I, I think that's basically right. But what the reason I wrote the column, and probably I should have quoted, um, you know, people who you consider more centrist liberals, right? But um, Christoph, Nick Christoph. Is, yep. Well, 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 or Jonathan, right? So immediately, so I wrote the column basically saying liberals, lots and lots of liberals, have convinced themselves. Trump is going to be the nominee in 2024, and I think he very well could be. I suspect you and I disagree a bit about that. He's going to run again. He's going to lose again, which I think he very well could. And then he's laying the groundwork to basically contest the election again. And this time, you know, Republicans will go along with him completely. And based on, you know, based on his more paranoid notions, you'll have January 6th on steroids. This is what I think, not just the far left and the Marxists, but lots and lots and lots of not ordinary Democrats out in the country, but people who work in politics and political journalism believe. And to prove my point, I guess, Jonathan Chait, who is a liberal writer for New York Magazine, who's not really on the left, who's been a big critic of wokeness and PC and all these things, as soon as I wrote the column, and the point of my column was I don't think this is likely to happen. <laughs> what he wrote a column saying, you know, Dowsett is in denial about the total authoritarian transformation of the Republican Party. So I think Chade is a good bellwether. And I, I, so I, I think I think this belief is mistaken. And that was the argument I made in the column. But it has become a very powerful belief on the center left as well as the left. And, it, and it's informing a lot of this, you know, the sense among Democrats in Washington that, you know, Joe Manchin isn't just a moderate Democrat who's, you know, trying to negotiate with Republicans, but you know, Joe Manchin is literally destroying the republic when he, you know, won't break the filibuster, right? That, and that Rod, let me let me let me put an objection right there. Now. I uh, I got to declare Jonathan and I do not get along very well, although he used to be a guest on the show. I I, so, I, I, uh, I, so I can I, imagine that. So I correct you can correct the lie of the green there. I do not think he represents the center left. I think he is monetized angst, as has Jay Rosen, as has the others. And when you have monetized, when you have an interest in being read by people, you have to amp up. You, ha you have to sort of increase the temperature if you've monetized anxiety, either on the right or the left. And Jonathan is one who's monetized anxiety. And so I look to the to the people who actually don't have bylines. The byline is the brand, but again, they're in the 3%. If you've got a byline, you're in the 3%. And so you monetize whatever it is that draws readers or eyeballs to your channel or to your column or to your platform or to your radio show. I try not to, I try to be NPR for the right, but nevertheless, it, it happens with some of my viewers. I talk about Tim Ryan. If you call up Tim Ryan, well, he's a candidate, so he's monetized that angst too. I think you'd have to go find Someone who is working in, in Indiana as a Democrat in charge of an agency, and they're not worried about a coup. They're, they're, they might be worried about the bridge falling down. They might be worried about not getting vaccines out to the countryside, and they might want some economic revitalization and some increasing opportunities for African-American youth in underserved communities. But it's, it's not. I just uh, The doomism and the alarmism and the monetization of angst 
increases this this decibel level on either end. It's like two brass bands playing at either end of the street when you're trying to go to sleep at night. And and Ross, I, you're not that way. Kristoff's not that way. The people I you know, Peter, I always bring on New York Times people because there there's a there's a tribe of you who are kind of in the center. And I don't want the Times to be understood by the country as being as left as it's like like Maya was on yesterday and got took in a lot of incoming because she said some pretty left wing things. But that's not your your platform. It's not that left. The country's not that left. Right. So so one, I agree with you about the country. Um, two, I think a big shift in the Trump era was that. People who were, well, people who were on the center left, not just not just people on the far left, were radicalized by Trump, and became convinced that all of their darkest fears about the Republican Party were true, and you know everything that the left had ever said about Republicans and racism, you know, or Republicans and authoritarianism was true because of how awful they thought Trump was, and some of them were monetizing. For clicks, absolutely. But I think it's I think it's better to just assume that people people get radicalized, right? And you know, and Trump was I think you and I could agree a rather unusual president. Can we can we agree on that? So so you have this unusual president. People people who oppose him get radicalized, and then you know I argued so when when the election. When the election happened, before the election, I wrote a column that, whose title you would prefer called There Will Be No Trump Coup. Right? Yes. About the previous Saturday. The alarmist. Yes. yes. Yep. That, this was, no, this was, yeah, this was like, this was pre-election, last October. Oh, okay. Right? Okay. So this was, this was before, the, before the election. I wrote this column, and, you know, because there was all of this alarm about how, you know, Bill Barr was going to send in the National Guard. To seize, to seize voting, voting boxes, and, and so on. Right. So I wrote a column saying this is not going to happen. Trump is a weak president, not a strong president. And the thing is, I stand by what I wrote in that column. But then, you know, Trump didn't concede. He surrounded himself with people who belong to your three percent. Right. Like, let's say Sidney Powell is is definitely in point three percent. Point three percent percent. Trump is the president, right? He surrounds himself with those people. He 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 and and then January sixth happens. And January sixth is like this Rorschach test, right? You can look at it and say it was you know, it was a riot, it was empty theater, most of the people who died were the protesters. But you can look at it and say these were people trying to disrupt the peaceful transfer. Of power oh, it was a horrible. It was Mike an insurrection. Pence. They wanted to kill right. Mike Pence. There were people who were intending right. Right. So, to kill Mike Pence. Right. Yes. So this is this is where this is the the liberal mind is focused, and and I agree. I agree with you. It's not the liberal mind of people, you know, working for the Department of Sanitation in Michigan, but it's more than just the radicals. The liberal mind is focused on this, and as long as Seems like, you know, I mean, the the, story, the stories we had last week, right, in National Review, not in not in far left periodicals and so on, were that, you know, the former president is convinced that these, you know, these ballot audits are going to put him back in the White House. All of these things, as long as this is going on, 
liberalism is going to remain at this kind of fever pitch. Now, and Ross, let me let me throw at you. Conservatives, then, right? The challenge for conservatives is, you know, not just to say, "Oh, you're crazy," <laughs> since there actually was an insurrection, but to say, like, "Well, what does the future of the Republican Party look like?" So that it's not, you know, Sidney Powell and um, you know, and 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 of an ex-president who thinks he can be restored to power. Um, this obvious. Right now, now, Ross, here's my. Do you remember? You're you're too young, but maybe you saw it on some late movie, Incredible Journey, when people got shrunk and injected into the body, and they went. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I'm so, not. I'm not that young, man. I know. Okay. I know so, what you're talking about. You know of which I speak. Your well, language. I, I did that, and I I got to go into MSNBC as the transplant that was rejected and owned the lowest rated hit show in the history of MSNBC. But for four years, you, I lived you, among you, the MSNBC. You had me on that show. So yes, I remember I, it very it, fondly. It, very fondly at 7.30 in the morning on Saturday. Sure, it was going to work. But uh, in any event, so I lived among them. I know them. They are my friends. They're not crazy. They're obliged to be crazy. It's performative. It's art. So that my, my whole theory of American politics is it's a carnival, and most people go to the carnival, and they get a little bit, and then they leave, and the people who take the carnival to the next town, and they have to make a little money off it. Meanwhile, most Americans go to the church that are reopened, they're busy about changing their school, and they've dispersed to the countryside, and they will come together. And as to Trump being unusual, yes, but the left is predictable. About Mitt Romney, they said awful things, that he didn't pay income taxes, that he destroyed jobs. About George Bush, Bush lied, people died. That reflexive left is—and Jay Rosen, God love Jay, he said the same thing about everybody. I just—you know, it's like a— the dog barking next door that drives me crazy, but it's the same dog and the same bark, and there's nothing I can do about it because the city protects his right to have a barking dog. My key is, what about, the, going back to that 10 years down the road, what will happen to American politics? I think a lot more people are going to want normalcy, and they're going to worry about China, Ross, and that's where I want to end this. The biggest thing, the two biggest things that Trump did was put three justices on the Supreme Court, and they have Roe before it, and they have guns before it, and they may rid us of, I, I wrote about this this week in the Post, they may rid us of Roe v. Wade and Casey and give it back to the states, and we may be past that that detour into destructive animus over reproductive rights and the gun rules may be settled forever. That would be a big thing. And he awoke us to China, and we needed awakening to China. So about those two things, clarity has got to be there. What Trump did that we should salute is focus us on the courts and China. And for that, that unusual president should be thanked. And I don't see him coming back. We, we, we disagree about that. But what about those two areas? Ought we not to be celebrating those two areas? I mean, I think Trump was not just in those areas. I, I think that he was a transformative figure in a bunch of different ways than, that I think Republicans especially should learn from. Um, I mean, I, I think his China, his China hawkishness was a little overstated. He mostly wanted to get, you know, better trade deals, and which is why when the pandemic came along, he was caught a little bit flat-footed. But he did lead, you know, a general reorientation of how people think about China. He did change the courts, and he also changed the Republican Party in ways that made it, you know, the reason he was competitive in 2020 when, you know, the polls didn't expect him to be was he, he made the Republican Party more appealing to 
not just white working class voters, um, but a lot of Hispanic voters as well. And, you know, we just had a, a mayoral election in McAllen, Texas, right, where um, the Republican candidate won. It's, you know, it's a Hispanic area, traditionally Democratic. Trump won a lot of votes there. And it translated. And you could have, you know, this sort of this a Republican Party competitive in areas where the Republican Party of Mitt Romney wasn't wasn't competitive. Um, so a more working class party, remarkably a, a slightly more ethnically diverse political party. And, you know, yeah, some big picture changes in U.S. foreign policy are all things that Trump will be remembered for as a significant president. Um, at the same time, he was, you know, a crazy man who polarized the country in profound ways and bears some responsibility for the craziness that you see among liberals because he egged it on, he goaded them into it, and he didn't make the Republican Party victorious. And this is, this is, this is where the question for 2024 that, that looms just internally to the GOP is, you know, the whole narrative around stop the steal and voter fraud, right, is a, has, becomes a way for Republicans to say, oh, we're already winning elections, and it's just the Democrats are stealing them. And the reality is that Trump couldn't get the Republican Party past 47, 48 percent of the vote. And to get, to tie this back to my book, to get out of decadence, to get out of political stalemate, to get back to the world where you, Hugh Hewitt, wrote books, you know, called like Painting the Map Red, right, about, you know, sort of permanent Republican majorities, to get to that world, that world of a changed politics, you need to somehow get out from under the shadow of, you know, Sidney Powell and having state legislatures overturn, overturn elections. And there, I'm, I'm halfway in between the liberals and you people. I don't think we're quite out from under that shadow, even though I don't fear it the way um, our friends at MSNBC do. Uh, okay, to put a bow on it, I, 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 I don't want to be Lot's wife and look at the Sidney Powells of the world. And I just, I, don't, I think President Trump was crazy like a fox and he got a lot done, but that I don't see him being a shadow over the party. I really don't. I just think that is the left view of the Republican Party, whereas I look at, at the Republicans who are going to lead, whether it's DeSantis or Pompeo or Cotton or Chris Christie or Tim Scott. I had Tim Scott on yesterday for the interview and the long conversation, and I say, everything is going to be rosy, and the country will be fine if we handle China. But I got to close, Ross. The last time I saw you in person, we were talking about naive and the wheel of time. So in the course of the virus, I, I went and became, every, every month I would read a new fantasy epic because, you know, I'd listen to it when I walked. All I did during the virus and the shutdown was walk. And now I'm on to Barry Sanderson's The Way of Kings because I just finished Doom by Neil Ferguson, and the British are coming by Rick Atkinson. And I, it's just useful in between saying nothing about the IRA to go into a completely fabricated world. Do you still read fantasy epics as a way to take off from the world? Oh, God, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, I, read, I read a lot of fantasy. I have never made it through Sanderson. Those books, those books are, even by the standards of fantasy epics, dauntingly long. Um, but I, I read this guy, this uh, British fantasy novelist named Joe Abercrombie, um, who has books that are a little bit like Game of Thrones, except he actually finishes them. 
Oh, so, well, give me the name. And, I and, need it. This is how I survive is with I every mean, five I'll books. I'll just warn you, they're, you know, they're dark and bloody. They're what's called grim dark, right? So there's, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of sex and violence and unpleasantness. But they're, Joe Abercrombie is, is the author. I think the most recent one is called The Trouble with Peace. But there are like two trilogies and some standalone books. There's oh, book, I need the it. The one that might, I need it. that might appeal to you the most is called, I think, Heroes or The Heroes. And it's basically... Have you you read the Killer Angels, right? The Gettysburg novel. Yes. Yes. So it's basically that. It's like the story of a single huge battle told in a novel, except it's a fantasy battle. It's not. You know, it's not Gettysburg. Um, well, I reckon. It's, it's I'm so terrific. glad. I'm so glad I asked you about that. Ross and I have a. I, I will never forget him saying "Nynaeve with her arms crossed," and I said, "He's one of me, us. He's, he's he's one of us." That's, 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 we we proud. We few. We, <laughs> we, we happy readers. Yeah, Ross, congratulations! I'll look forward to reading this and to your new book in October. I'm really intrigued by the new October book. Make sure I don't miss it. I hope we don't have another I won't. epidemic. I will, I will be in touch. You. I will. Be All right. Touch. Thanks for be having well, me. Ross Douthat of the New York Times. That concludes today's episode of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.